Welcome, this is Coppercast, a show dedicated to exploring the wonderful, if somewhat technical, world of institutional investment in crypto assets. I'm your host, Tyler Kenyon. Our guest today is Nate Hyman, head of growth at Bancor, an on-chain liquidity protocol that enables automated decentralized exchange across the Ethereum network. By DeFi standards, Bancor is an original gangster, having been around since 2017 and claiming, in fact, to be the first DeFi protocol. Welcome, Nate. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. So let's get into it. But before we do the DeFi, tell, tell us a bit about yourself, where you're from, um, what you're doing before crypto happened. Sure. Yeah. So I'm from the US. Uh, I was actually originally a financial journalist uh, at the Huffington Post and uh, wrote for quite a few other uh, publications, um, then started uh, messing around a lot in technology startups, uh, mobile development, uh, mobile app type startups, went through a few acquisitions, and then in 2017, stumbled on Ethereum and crypto, went down the rabbit hole, and the rest is history. Jo- uh, I joined Bancor in early 2018, so I've been with the project for about four years now. And what's Bancor solving? Bancor is effectively allowing exchanges to be built by everyday users. So historically, liquidity, which is used to facilitate trading in exchanges, has only been provided by professional market makers. It's required uh, algorithms and constant monitoring and maintenance. And so Bancor in 2017 came up with this innovation called automated market making or AMMs as we know them today. Um, And that just blew up as the sort of core building block of decentralized finance. Most projects that you know about are probably using AMMs in some capacity. Pretty early on when we released AMMs, we realized that there was sort of a tragic flaw. And that's where if one of the tokens inside the liquidity pool goes up in value, as an LP or liquidity provider, you're actually selling that asset off and can withdraw far less from the pool than what you put in. And so Bancor came out in 2020 with a sort of novel innovation called impermanent loss protection and single-sided liquidity. And so it allows people to provide liquidity to a pool with just one asset, be exposed to that just one asset, and be fully protected from impermanent loss. So I'd like to say we make DeFi simple AF or simple as, yeah. And okay, you can uh, swear on this oh, podcast. Oh, nice. Well, we make DeFi simple as fuck. <laughs> and, uh, you know, just allow folks to participate in AMM liquidity pools uh, in a way safer way. And we believe this is kind of how the big, biggest exchanges will emerge. And to go into like a, a little bit more detail on uh, impermanent loss protection. Does does Bancor then underwrite some risk, or are they exposing themselves to some risk by offering that service to their customers? Yeah. So what we've effectively, when we launched impermanent loss protection, turned Bancor into sort of like an insurance company. Now, what we do on the protocol level is we will co-invest with an LP. So say you bring $100,000 worth of link, we will match that with $100,000 worth of BNT. And now both sides of the pool are generating fees, including what the protocol provided, it's BNT. And so this protocol-owned liquidity generates fees that can be used to compensate the LP when they withdraw for any impermanent loss that they've suffered. And so you could say that we've transferred the risk of impermanent loss from 
liquidity providers who we don't think should shoulder that loss uh, into the protocol and that the protocol is best positioned to sort of manage this risk. And to date, we've used the protocol's fees to compensate uh, LPs for impermanent loss. And it's acted as really a successful first line of defense that we haven't been, we haven't had to, you know, mint a bunch of BNT in order to compensate this loss because we can sort of spread the risk of impermanent loss across our whole network of pools. It's not just one pool that we're really able to generate fees that end up compensating LPs for this risk. And in terms of like, I mean, price volatility is synonymous with, with crypto. And obviously that's a, a huge factor in this. So how often are you having to provide compensation for impermanent loss? Well, impermanent loss is just a natural occurrence of market making. You know, it, it really always occurs. And we've done some really in-depth studies on AMMs across the industry and found out that, you know, roughly we just did a, a, a study, a really interesting study on Uniswap V3, and they're using this concentrated liquidity strategy. We actually found that roughly 50% of users were losing money. And so 50% of users are gaining money too. Now, this is a super high risk that, you know, we think is just kind of, uh, you know, to sell a yield product and say, well, listen, half the time you're going to lose money, we think is kind of fundamentally broken. And Bancor, um, you know, you're, you're generally going to make money or you're at least going to pull out the amount of value that you've put in. And so our fundamental thesis and what's proven, you know, fairly um, robust since we launched this model, and it's been about a year now, is that, you know, you can't really predict impermanent loss. But what we found is that while some tokens will go up a lot in value, and within that pool, you know, it might be a higher cost of impermanent loss versus the fees that it generates, that it, that it generates, um, other pools will generate more fees and be more profitable and have less impermanent loss. And so you're really able to, like I said, kind of um, spread this risk across many different tokens. We now have, you know, over 100 tokens whitelisted such that we can use the profitable pools and the profits from those pools to compensate for the pools that are generating uh, a lot of IL. And it's also, it's not even on a pool level, but it's on an individual LP level. So you could have the same pool that where one LP, just based on the time that they deposit their liquidity, could be up a lot and another LP that could be down a lot. So it's this kind of impossible risk to uh, really predict and model. And we think the best way to do that is really to spread the risk across the entire market. As you said, this has been a live, um, a live product since 2020. I mean, the, the growth of the DeFi space in general since 2019, 2020 has been phenomenal. You know, I think the latest numbers is like 250 billion total value locked, if you like that as a metric. Um, did you anticipate the growth being quite as rapid as it has been? And has that had, you know, an effect on your ability to manage risk across the whole market? Yeah. So, you know, financially, I think, uh, you know, it's been, you know, we, we've been able to uh, sort of see that certain assets are outperforming uh, BNT or ETH. And that's really the the key metric that you're looking at in, in a liquidity pool is whether the asset is outperforming ETH. Um, and certain assets have sort of tracked ETH um, and very nicely sort of 
created an instance where both assets in the pool are kind of moving together. And it's really that divergence in the asset that, you know, creates your, your cost. So, you know, I think where we have these sort of moonshots that have um, outperformed ETH, there's also been quite a few that have tracked the price of ETH and it's allowed, you know, the, the pools in which there's less divergence to generate enough fees to, to take care of the assets that have, that have really outperformed ETH. Um, and then just in general, you know, zooming out, I think the pace of innovation is something that's, um, you know, both additive and also kind of lights a fire under you as a, as a DeFi builder. Um, seeing how quickly the open source code that you put out is getting forked and, um, you know, put on another chain or, you know, another L2 or a certain tweak in whether it's marketing or tokenomics requires you to design models that where you believe you can generate moats and some defensibility. Um, and the, you know, transferring risk onto uh, our BNT holders, really the value of our protocol is having this group of token holders that can decide where they want to in, invest their liquidity into what pools, where they want to shrink liquidity. And so the value of your network really becomes your DAO and your token holders, and that becomes your moat. And I think that our model in particular kind of leans on that, that approach. Speaking of how much, you know, change there has been in the pace of change, um, you know, what implications that have on like on the security side? Because I know we were talking a little bit before about, you know, our brands are pretty aligned on, you know, the speed and security of access to the markets. Have you noticed, you know, a, a certain professionalization occurring in the DeFi space along with the, the, the new entrance and the, the focus on dev and projects? Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, it's not hard to see that, you know, a lot of the actors at banks and Wall Street are converging on DeFi because of all the promise it offers. And I think a really core learning that we've seen as this talent is sort of flooded into the space is in a lot of these DeFi protocols, if they're only profitable or successful for the most advanced users who are connected and wealthy and have the best algorithms and the best Goldman, MIT, PhDs, then the liquidity will also be sort of centralized in the hands of a fewer. Mm -hmm. So it, it sort of, you know, is amazing to see all the talent flood in, but in some ways kind of undermines the core tenants of accessibility of DeFi. If we end up in a system where the retailer individual user is just getting run over, then it's not much different than, than traditional finance. And so there are certain um, designs in DeFi that I think it's important that um, the sort of everyday user who is not your sort of professional high frequency user can use it and, and use it successfully. Uh, because if they can't, then you get in a situation where, again, it's only the most advanced users that are using it, and then they sort of control the system. Like, look at what happened with GameStop and, and Robinhood. Now, you, the only people who are providing liquidity on, say, Robinhood are this small group of hedge funds. And when they decide they want to pull liquidity for that asset, it all of a sudden restricts trading the asset when users need it the most. So you've kind of... Uh, the censorship resistance kind of goes down the drain. 
And so that's really core to, to Bancor is that it's usable by everyday users that don't do this full time for a living and they can be successful at it. And as a result, they will provide liquidity and they'll participate so that the liquidity can be sort of decentralized across, you know, thousands or millions of nodes as opposed to the old school style of exchanges where it's just a few actors that are connected to the exchange that are providing the liquidity. Do you think speaking about, um, you know, that sort of mass adoption and accessibility for everyday retail users, because DeFi is a new space within a new space even, do you think that because there's been a certain number of like hacks and exploits, it's still a barrier to entry and, you know, are there lessons for us as an industry to learn about either mitigating those risks or the messaging we need to put out around those risks so that more people feel more comfortable engaging in the space? Yeah, I think for sure, you know, we talk to institutions all the time and they simply can't expose themselves to a protocol vulnerability or hack and, and see their LPs money affected in that way. And I think this really gets solved in the same way that it was solved in traditional finance, which is through insurance models. And I think you're seeing a ton of very interesting insurance and reinsurance models emerge in DeFi. And I think those will be absolutely crucial to having, you know, institutions participate in a, in a meaningful way is having access to, um, you know, strong, you know, insurance options and whether that's offered by uh, other protocols or whether that's offered by whatever custodial solution they choose. Um, but I think that's a total crucial piece in order to kind of welcome in this uh, institutional capital. So what's coming up next? Because I know Bancor's got V3 coming soon, but I think it's... Soon, TM. Soon. Yeah. <laughs> so um, what to expect in V3, uh, if you can say, and yeah. then any further clues on timing as well. Yeah, sure. So we actually just this week are sharing that the first details of V3 are being unveiled on November 29th. Okay. Um, and that will be the sort of first phase and kickoff of V3. We're targeting a go live date of uh, January uh, 2022. And effectively, you know, what we've done over the past year is we've you know, introduced this uh, impermanent loss protection model and single-sided liquidity. We've made AMMs far easier and safer to use. And that's just going to get easier and less costly less friction for everyday users. So we really want people to be able to earn more crypto while doing even less. Um, so things around, um, you know, the capacity within the pools, there are currently caps on the pools and that's a lot of that is going away. Um, you know, I can't share a lot here. A lot of these details will become more clear uh, on November 29th. And will that be an event to, is it an in-person event? Is it login, watch it on YouTube? Yeah, it's a login, watch on YouTube. We'll have a, a few uh, DeFi influencers uh, interviewing the team. So it'll be on our live stream uh, on, our, on our YouTube. And then we'll actually be in Miami for the Decentral event on the 30th, the next day, uh, presenting it uh, in person. And so, uh, you know, we really think that um, the innovation in DeFi recently we think has been sort of a little stagnant and the industry is sort of waiting for a step change to this kind of core building block AMMs. And we think that uh, V3 is really offering that we've, you know, been in this uh, business for, uh, you know, five years and 
are really ready to take AMMs to the next level and make them you know, even easier to use, especially for passive institutional LPs who are not you know, the type that are actively managing their stake, but have just crypto exposure, assets they're long on, and want the type of yields that an AMM can offer. So one of the natural enemies of innovation, I think, has always been, at least in the financial services space, regulation. Um, I mean, they shouldn't really be enemies, but it's it's certainly something that innovation comes up against. And I think for institutions who are looking at this space as well, who are bound by regulations, um, do you see, you know, are there any jurisdictions in particular or do you think globally we're moving to a place where the technology is becoming more easily understood, so regulators are being able to move more quickly in terms of creating frameworks, or do you think, you know, the space is evolving so quickly that, you know, the regulators just don't have the the resources, the people, in order to keep up, and that's going to continue hampering adoption, at least on an inti- institutional scale? Well, I think at least over the past six months to a year, we finally have this more of a sort of fruitful dialogue Whereas before, you know, it was kind of guesswork. Uh, you know, you would hear about actions or rumors uh, about guidelines. Now we have in paper, FATF just released their, their guidelines the past uh, few weeks and those, those were finalized. And I think a lot of people in the DeFi industry think that some of the, um, some of the guidelines are, you know, really misunderstanding and miscategorizing and um, are just untenable um, for for the DeFi space. And what's encouraging is that we have this dialogue now to, as an industry, start working with regulators and we, you know, we, we at least have something to work off of to say, well, this is why um, the, you know, definition of a virtual asset service provider is flawed. Um, and this is how, you know, the we believe developers can, you know, effectively build in this space and um, keep pushing on, a, on, the, on the innovation that's coming out. So I'm encouraged by the fact that, that we have a, I'd say, deeper dialogue. You have, you know, um, lobbying groups and nonprofits that are fully focused on um, the educational piece for regulators. And you see quite a few uh, regulators that, you know, seem... I think way more educated in the space than a lot of us were really expecting. So um, do you think there's still a risk that um, whatever framework eventually gets adopted either regionally or globally, that there will be this sort of like bifurcation and you'll have um, DeFi with permission liquidity pools and, you know, it's accessible to institutions and you get big liquidity in there and you'll get this other slightly more, crypto friendly or original kind of thinking around crypto where it's retail users and it's still you know no KYC that kind of stuff and not as much liquidity but it's more akin to original thinking in crypto is is there still a chance that we'll get these two paths to go down well the what was laid out in the FATF guidelines certainly pushing for uh, you know VASPs and, and DeFi protocols to Effectively, be permissioned, um, and I, you know, it seems that anything that's permissioned is just inherently not decentralized. So there's just these kind of messages from both sides. You're, you're being told as a builder, you know, decentralized is 
fast as possible, no control whatsoever. And then on the other hand, you're you know, being told that um, you need some sort of permissioned layer. Um, so, you know, I, it's not clear to me, you know, how things revolve. I'm actually curious what, what your take is on and whether you think we will get these sort of two worlds, the dark world and the permissioned world. Um, I think the only thing I've learned in this space is to stop predicting. Because, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, whatever I, I think is going to happen, you know, wait six months and either a new innovation technology will come out or, you know, a new law will come out. So it, it, it's very hard to predict. So maybe it's unfair me asking you and a it, question. I also think this idea that we'll have these sort of global standards anytime soon, you know, there will always be jurisdictions that will be more welcoming to, um, you know, decentralized finance and, and blockchain technology. And at the same time, I think as a builder, you kind of have to be sort of comfortable that the technology that you put out, there will likely be some jurisdiction in the world that, you know, deems what you are doing, uh, you know, violating uh, their laws. So uh, it will be certainly exciting to, to see how, how things play out. I think just what's encouraging is that the guidelines, you know, as, as flawed as they may be, are starting to come out and there is this dialogue. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, you're seeing very serious um, lawyers join full-time DeFi protocols. And, you know, DeFi protocols having very, very serious, uh, you know, legal teams that are, you know, advising the, the um, developers and community on how to, to build their protocols uh um, in a way that's compliant. And, you know, we, we will also, we have an interesting situation in which um, the view of the regulator is kind of, you know, it, when Bitcoin was created, Satoshi was, you know, potentially doing something illegal. But now that Bitcoin is as decentralized as it is, um, that, you know, Bitcoin is, is no longer security, right? That's their view. So it'll be interesting to see the protocols that, are currently live and scaled out and decentralized that have been around, whether this creates sort of chilling effect on the sort of newcomers to the space um, to, to start from day one when you have the clarity, as opposed to we have these sort of autopilot protocols already out there. Um, so do you think, I mean, with in the looking at the traditional space in the US specifically, it's taken basically four years for an ETF to get approval, maybe longer. I guess four years since real professionals have moved in from TradFi to start pushing and advancing that. Uh, you know, what's the what's the DeFi perspective on ETFs approvals in the U.S.? Do you think that's you know a harbinger of good things to come? Yeah, you know, uh, I would say so, but it's sort of this come, become a meme at this point, mm -hmm. you know, given how long how long it's uh, taken. Um, so you know, I, what do you see is I guess spin this right back at you, what do you see as the set of kind of core, you know, advantage of, of that being passed? And I guess as it relates to, to DeFi, I think it's almost psychological. Mm -hmm. It's like a, a validation at a very high level in a very big market that, you know, crypto as a, as a concept, uh, as a tool is, is valid and we can engage with it on an institutional level. And then I think there will almost be a, a trickle down effect across all projects and protocols. Mm. Mm. But it might take time. Uh, well, I guess it will take time. But maybe things are speeding up as well. 
you right. know, the, the understanding of the SEC is certainly speeding up. Um, so yeah, I'm hopeful that it, it means good things. Yeah, I mean, I've certainly been taken aback by how fast the mainstreaming of crypto, you know, we were screaming from the top of our DeFi roof since 2017 and things were pretty quiet. And then just in the past six months, you know, Tom Brady is on TV talking about NFTs. And so I've been kind of shocked by how quickly the mainstreaming has happened. And, and now regulators are really having to scramble and to, you know, start to, to set up some guidelines for, for where we're at. So, um, it seems we've hit an inflection point, especially with NFTs. You know, with, with DeFi, like a lot of people said this, that it's not the sort of mainstream public doesn't necessarily want to do automated market making or options trading, but with NFTs and culture and art, it's it's sort of, you know, way easier for them to get onboarded into the space. And then once they discover that they can actually put their assets to work, that they can passively participate in services that are, you know, providing uh, financial services. I think that it, that allows them to sort of enter the space way more effectively than... I mean, you know. conceptually, it's more familiar territory, I guess. Mm-hmm. I mean, with NFTs, at least you can see something. With AMMs, it's still like, should I look it up on GitHub? Like, what right. is this? You know? Right. And so I think it'll be cool to see how nfts and these like much more relatable and digestible concepts are used as sort of onboarding mechanism uh to users because you know onto into DeFi, it's certainly already happening in in nfts and and that's moved i think you know 100x faster than we saw you know folks get metamask and start plugging into different DeFi protocols yeah or copper connect for that matter there you go <laughs> yeah okay cool <laughs> nate i'm conscious of your time so thank you very much for coming in and sharing your thoughts with us I've got just a couple questions we ask everyone. So sure. if you wouldn't mind running through those with Uh-oh. me. Um, they're, pretty, they're pretty easy. Uh, so he, didn't, he didn't prep me for these, by the way. Just specifically. <laughs> so um, where do you see the industry? Um, and you can go crypto industry or you can go DeFi specifically. In one year versus 10 years. Wow. Well, um, toughy. So one year, I see more sort of NFT craziness. Um, I see, you know, that that sort of primitive continuing to evolve and, and onboarding folks. And I do feel there will be a point, like we said, where they kind of uh, hit a wall and want to sink their teeth in a little deeper into the space beyond just, um, you know, collectibles and trading collectibles. And so towards the sort of five-year, 10-year mark, having it sort of more deeply integrated into people's lives, you know, their banking, payment, loan services. Um, and so that's kind of the, the more 10-year mark. In the next few years, uh, I see the gaming and the culture and the art sort of being that onboarding layer and then, you know, people integrating crypto and blockchain more deeply into their sort of everyday finances. If you could change one thing about the industry, what would it be? Uh, I think, you know, we're all idealists. We we want this future to happen uh, a little bit sort of faster than um, things tend to happen in the world. And so, uh, you know, I would love to see that idealism um, balanced against, you know, when folks kind of uh, are 
super tribal or lash out that, you know, something isn't uh, working exactly, you know, how they expect it or want it to work. We're still a very sort of young industry. So I would hope that we can sort of balance our, you know, idealism with sort of patience and not sort of lash out and realize that are, you know, the real competitors and, you know, what we're up against is, is TradFi more so than, than our fellow sort of DeFi and crypto enthusiasts. So we should, we should abolish the term when moon. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, the, the moon is really what brings newcomers into the space. Everyone looking at that story about the $8,000 in Shiba turning into $5 billion, I mean, that story has just made the rounds around the world, and that's potentially one of the better onboarding mechanisms for everyday people. So the moon boys and gals certainly do serve their role in the space. <laughs> okay. What is one piece of technology in your personal life you couldn't live without? Tough. And it does not necessarily have to be crypto. It can be anything. I, I think one guy said his bread maker. His bread maker. Oh, I that, mean, that was in peak lockdown, though. So okay. I think it was showing. <laughs> <laughs> Yikes. My favorite. Oh, technology. Mm. You know, I'll have to just go with something boring and standard and I guess what's sitting in my pocket right now and, uh, you know, communicating with the rest of the world. Uh, I'll have to get back to you on a a cooler and funnier tech. That's okay. I mean, phones are pretty critical these days. (laughs) It's true. Okay. Um, What does your weekend look like if you get time off? Yikes, probably getting outside. Um, You know, I'm just completely subsumed by... Um, blockchain most of my life and so when I can uh, you know extract myself from computer telegram discord I'm usually just trying to shut all devices off and at least get a solid few hours uh, out and about get some of that vitamin D yeah cool is there a movie you can watch over and over again and never get tired of Groundhog Day Mm. yeah that's kind of meta yeah I like it (laughs) Do you have any catchphrases or mottos that you live by? Oh, no. <laughs> what about you? Uh, I mean, you don't have to, but um, I do have one, actually. Mm. Um, it goes back to, I, I spent some time in the military, and a bunch of guys in my patrol, we all got tattooed with uh, facta non verba, which is deeds, not words. Ah, love it. That's fantastic. Yeah, that's another, uh, another I'm blanking on, but uh, yes. I'll, I'll, tweet it, I'll tweet it at you. And, uh, well, that leads into my next question. You. Who should we all follow on Twitter? Well, there's actually this uh, woman I just started following named uh, Ming Zhao. Uh, her handle is at Fabius Mercurius. She had an amazing thread on AMMs, and I'm digging into a lot of the stuff she's written. And it reminds me that you know a lot of people say crypto is relearning the lessons of traditional finances learned for you know decades, and I think she has an awesome grasp on uh, tradfi and you know how we can apply those learnings to crypto. So check her out. Nice. We'll give that a follow. What was the last thing that surprised you? Well, taxi over this morning. (laughs) I was shocked by, I think we were stuck in traffic for about 15 minutes, but the amount that you can cover with a taxi driver in a short period of time and just sort of, you know, you have just a few minutes left and you just get it all out there. Your thoughts, there's just no hold bars. You remember when I see this person again. It's a very captive audience as well. (laughs) Exactly. So I guess it shocks me uh, how in-depth you can get in uh, short periods of time with random strangers. Cool. Who's the next guest we should have on the show? 
Ooh, wow. I would say, I mean, you got to have SBF, right? He's sort of a standard. I think he's retweeted us a few times. There you go. Uh, we do tend to do this in person, so he might have to uh, hop on a flight. Actually, I think he's coming over from Daz. Are you going to Daz London in a couple of weeks? No, I'm not. I th- okay. okay well, I thought that already happened. Uh, well, there's Daz New York a couple okay. months ago, but Daz yeah. London on the 15th, 16th of November. Maybe nice. you should come back for it. Yeah, get him then. Cool. Uh, okay, last question. If you somehow managed to meet Satoshi, but you only got to ask him one question, what would it be? I guess why? What what exactly was, you know, there's a lot of speculation and certainly in the Bitcoin white paper, he gives some reasons for why. But I'm curious what was going on in his life at, at that point that he sort of thought up this wild piece of technology. And so you know, I would say where he was at, I would want to know his story, like everyone does at this point. Yeah. So the, yeah, who's the creator behind behind all that. Cool. Nate, that's that's all we've got time for. So thank you very much, man. I've enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome to be on. To our listeners, if you haven't already seen Nate's show and tell video, please go to our YouTube page or you can find it on Twitter at CopperHQ or you can find it on the website, copper.co forward slash insights. There you can sign up for our newsletter, which goes out every Tuesday and includes links to all the week's top stories as well as any updates from the wider team here at Copper. If you've enjoyed listening to the podcast, please make sure to give us a good review in whichever streaming platform you're using. If you want to get in touch, you can always reach me, Tyler, on Twitter at CryptoTSK, or you can email me directly, tyler.kenyon at copper.co. If you'd like to be a guest on our show, or if you know someone who should be, please give us a shout. We're here to talk all things institutional crypto. And this show couldn't be made possible without the technical and creative support of Ben Silvertown and Tally Spear, with support from Maley Mountfort and Eva Lila. Mm-hmm.